0: Today's reading is uh, Matthew 27:57 through28:10. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it on his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first Pilate said to them you have a guard of soldiers go make it as secure as you can so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard now after the sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week mary magdalene and the other mary went to see the tomb and behold there is a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of, of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that ye seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead.
1: happy easter everybody i want to invite our children to children's church kathy is already back there so if you don't see her i'm pretty sure you know the way it's hard to get lost it's one long hallway so you'll get there just keep walking Uh, let's open in a word of prayer lord jesus we sang this glorious truth this morning of your resurrection and lord how your blood has washed us clean and so the symbol for easter is white And uh, Lord, we celebrate the cleansing that we've received by your death and your resurrection. Lord, thank you for um, proving to us that you have the power over sin and death and hell. And Lord, we uh, pray for our worship service this morning as we now look into your word. Lord, would you show us um, what it means to trust in a risen Savior? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Friday, we did a tenebrae service, and what that means is tenebrae is the Latin for darkness, for the word darkness, and so the room was dim, and we went through the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, and the service ended with him in the tomb and Joseph of Arimathea rolling, rolling the stone in front of the, the grave, and then we walked out in silence, and it, I, I, if you were here, I, that always is so moving to me the way it just ends, and what I was thinking about this year as I was contemplating Easter is that was the disciples' experience. We have the blessing of knowing all the rest of the story, but they were living it. And so up to that point, they had really no idea what was coming next. And so the stone is rolled in front of the tomb and the next day is called Silent Saturday. And what was it like for them on Silent Saturday? What was going on for them? And what I want to do this morning is, is preach a little bit different of a sermon, because what I'd like us to do is to go with them into Silent Saturday, so that when we come into Resurrection Sunday, we can experience what they might have experienced, the, the, the joy of it all. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach a little bit topically. I'm going to look at the, the Easter story through the lens of three different disciples, Peter, Mary Magdalene, and then Thomas. And to do that, I want to look at what they might have been doing on Silent Saturday. Now, the scriptures are very silent on what happened. That's why it's called Silent Saturday. Luke 23 56 says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And that's pretty much all we get. So, how am I going to do a whole sermon about what they did on Saturday? Well, what I'm going to try to do is look at what they were doing on Friday and what they were doing on Sunday and think about what it meant for them to be in Silent Saturday, what was it like for them to experience the crucifixion and the death of their savior? And then the joy that erupted on them on Sunday. So we know some of these characters fairly well. And so I'm gonna do a little bit, hopefully sanctified imagination. And what I mean by that is I'm trying to go with what the scriptures tell us about them and think, what were they thinking? What were they experiencing on Saturday? and, And imagine a little bit. So if you don't think that I got it right, it's okay. It's just, it's just, like I said, a sanctified imagination, but I hope we can capture that anyway. So um, what our goal here is, is to get to Easter Sunday and experience that joy of, oh my gosh, he really did do what he said. And what would that be like? So let's start with looking at Peter. Now we know Peter pretty well. He is very active in the gospels. There's a whole bunch. He's, he's large and in charge in the gospels. But where I think we begin to get some insight into how he's thinking before uh, Silent Saturday is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what it says in uh, Matthew 26 is they sang a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd of the sheep and the flock will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13 but after i am raised up i will go before you to galilee peter answered him though all fall away because of you i will never fall away jesus said to him truly i tell you this very night before the rooster crows you will deny me 3 times peter said to him even if i must die with you i will not deny you and all the disciples said the same so what's he expecting here what's his thought process here well When we want to talk about first century Jewish expectations of the Messiah, we can be about as precise as if we were to say, I want to discuss uh, 21st century evangelical anticipation of his return. In other words, there's a ton of opinions and they're all over the map. So we can't really say this is what the Jews expected from the Messiah with any kind of precision. But there was a general anticipation that a Messiah was coming. There was some building anticipation. It felt like he might be coming soon. And generally speaking, there was the idea that the Messiah would be a king. He would be David's son, and he would come, and he would sit on the throne of Israel, and he would restore Israel to its former glory. He would be the son of David who would sit on the throne and never leave. And, and this was going to be this glorious time for Israel. And so there's a lot of expectations from it, of that. There were false messiahs who came up and, and claimed to be him and thought they were something, and they wound up getting arrested and killed and, and gone. But the general thought in the background is largely of this reigning king. And so it appears that Peter has the idea that the Messiah, Jesus, because he, he acknowledged him as that, right? Who do the people say I am? Well, some say Elijah, and some say John the Baptist raised, or one of the prophets. Well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So he expects, he, he understands Jesus to be the Messiah, But it appears that his conception of what the Messiah was, was a military ruler, a king who's going to come and defeat his enemies. And I say that because as he's in the garden, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I'm going to stand by you. And so what happens next? Well, the crowd shows up to arrest Jesus. And what's Peter's response? Military. He draws his sword and swings it at the first person that's, that's close to him, takes off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. He's ready to engage in a military conflict. He thinks this is what's coming. And so that's that's his anticipation. This is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to ascend to the throne. And Jesus' response is, Peter, put your sword away. He he can't conceive of this. This is not ringing true in his preconceived ideas of what the Messiah is. I thought we were going to, and, and don't think that, after the resurrection, that, that notion evaporated because Acts chapter one, what happened? Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and the disciples look at him and go, is now when you restore the, the kingdom to Israel, is, is, it, is it now? Do you ascend to the throne? Are we gonna do it now? And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know times and seasons, but you'll be my witnesses. So that 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 idea of what Jesus would be like as a Messiah was hard for them to shake. So Peter says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna never deny you. I'll be there the whole time." Well, when the, they come with clubs and, and and swords to arrest Jesus, the disciples flee. They're gone. Um, there's in Mark, it's a story of one young man who had a linen robe, left it and ran away naked. And the thought is that was probably Mark. So he was so terrified when they caught hold of his garment, he shed it and took off running naked into the night. That's how frightened he was. But give Peter some credit. Him and John follow Jesus. They arrest him. They take Jesus to the, um, the high priest's house. Well, John happened to know the high priest. He knew his family and he gets him in. He gets him into the gate. John goes further in. Peter is standing at the gate and there's a charcoal fire. And so he comes around and he's standing at the charcoal fire. And he's waiting. He's trying to figure out what is going on. I thought we were, I thought now was the time. Now was the military campaign. We were going to rise up and and beat these Romans, but it's not happening. And I don't understand what's happening. And what is going on? Now, Peter is extraordinarily human, isn't he? He's the most human of the disciples. He's the guy that shoots his mouth off, that, that puts his foot in it. He is so much like me. It gives me so much hope. It really does. I don't think Peter was this monumental, colossal figure who never doubted. I I think he struggled at this point because his conception of who Jesus was going to be is shattered. It's turned upside down. And so he's he's standing at that that charcoal fire, and he's thinking about this. He's running it through his brain. What on earth is going on? A little servant maiden. And and the word for it is paideia. She's a little girl. She's young. She looks, and, and in the glow of that charcoal, she recognizes a face, and she says, hey, you were one of his disciples. And Peter now is so shaken because things are not going according to plan. This is not how it was supposed to be. He blurts out, I, I, don't, I don't know him. I'm not one of them. And a few minutes later, she looks and she goes, no, you were. I saw you with him. No, I never knew the man. And when it comes a third time, he starts cursing. He is adamant. It never happened. And one of the most chilling parts of this story is Luke 22, beginning in verse 61. Jesus is arrested. He's inside of the high priest's home. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Just after Peter said, I've never known the man, Jesus looks at him. Can you imagine the stabbing pain that he must have felt? The heartbreak of, I can't believe I just said that. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I did it. I wasn't going to do it. I swore I wouldn't do it, and I did it. And then Luke says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter turns from this charcoal fire and runs into the cold of the night, shedding tears, sobs coming from deep within him. He has just denied his savior. He has just denied his Messiah, his king, his master, his teacher, his rabbi. He's denied him, and he runs off into the night, weeping bitterly. How could I have done that? And that's the last we see of Peter until Sunday morning. So what was he doing on silent Saturday? Well, not sure, but if we look at what happened on Sunday morning, he's with the disciples. He's gathered together again with the rest of the disciples. So it wasn't like he fled off into the night and didn't come back. He fled, he went somewhere, and eventually, apparently, he had a turn of heart, and he came back and he looked for the other disciples and said, guys, let's get together. He was at least with John because he and John run to the tomb, so at least with him. And so presumably, that's what he did is he gathered with the disciples. And what did he do with the disciples? Well, we know Peter. We know what he did or what he would do. one of the things that he remembers also is when Jesus told him about his, his betrayal in Luke's version, in Luke 22, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Peter's faith is fragile. It's frail, but it doesn't fail. Jesus has prayed for him. And he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this is when Peter says, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. And he did. So Peter has done exactly what Jesus said. His faith has gotten extraordinarily weak. But he's back with the disciples. He has turned. He's returned to the disciples. And so I can imagine Peter amongst all the disciples in the room saying, I am the least worthy person to come and try to strengthen you. Who am I? You guys fled? That was bad. I didn't just flee. I denied him because a little maiden terrified me. Who am I to strengthen you? But that's what Jesus told me to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. So what would he have done to strengthen them? Well, there's another period where Peter is present with the disciples. Jesus is not there and he has not yet received the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples are gathered. And Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you. Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends with power, and you see a different Peter, a man on fire. What happened between those two events while they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit is they're gathered together, and what Peter does is he looks at the Bible. He picks up the scriptures, and he looks at Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and he says, Judas is gone. And what the Bible is telling us we have to do is we have to replace him. Let another take his office. He interprets the Psalms as applying to Judas and Jesus. And he says, these are instructions to us, you guys. And so they decide we're gonna replace Judas. And so they, they, pick, they set some criteria. They pick two people, bring them forward and they cast lots for them. And Matthias is chosen to replace Judas amongst the 12. So this is what Peter is doing. This is even before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Peter is looking to scripture. He's going, what is the Bible telling us to do? So I would imagine on Saturday, he might be doing that same thing. He might be saying, what does the scripture say at this point? So perhaps Peter still has ringing in his ears. They will strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. That's Zechariah 13. So I can imagine Peter picking up the scroll, finding Zechariah 13 and reading. And this is what he reads. This is the section that that's in. Awake, O sword against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Peter looks at that. And says, that sounds like Jesus. He, he told us he was the good shepherd. He would be the one that would lay down his, his life for the sheep. That's who Jesus is. And, and he stood next to God. He was with God. He was very much with God. Look at the miracles that he did. This is amazing. But God said that he would strike him. What can that mean? Well, he struck our shepherd. And so he keeps reading. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them, as one refines silver and test them as gold. So Peter's experience on, on, throughout Jesus' ministry, but especially in the Holy Week, was the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they lied. They made up charges to get Jesus arrested and get him executed. They, they fibbed, they, they broke the commandments and they got the crowd to yell out, crucify him, release Barabbas. So maybe Peter looks and goes, maybe that's the third, two thirds is the nation has turned against Jesus. And maybe we're the one third. You guys, I don't know what comes next. I don't know what who's gonna replace Jesus. Jesus is dead, he's gone. We weren't expecting that. But God is saying that I'm going to put you through fire and refine you. And so maybe this is the test that God's using, the crucible that he's put us in to refine us. And and, and he'll he'll test us as as gold is tested and made pure. So I I don't know what comes next, you guys. Jesus is gone. We weren't expecting that. But God has promised that he's still with us, even in this crucible, even when he's working with us here. And so listen to the last part of this section. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. You guys, is the Lord still our God? We thought something different was going to happen with Jesus. Is the Lord still our God? Let's call out to him, and I would imagine him leading him in prayer, just sitting and praying. So maybe the next thing that Peter did after that was turn to the twenty-third Psalm: "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." He makes me to lead; he leads me into, um, or he makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Maybe he used these words to comfort them. And the disciples are coming together and going, okay, well, we don't know what happened. We don't know what comes next, but we still believe God is here. He's still at work. And so that leads us then to Mary Magdalene. We'll leave them there because it's it's almost daybreak. And we'll turn now to Mary Magdalene. So in Luke, he's listing these women who, who attended Jesus, who went with him. And provided for his needs they they paid for things they cared for him they provided food or whatever it was in Luke 8 it says of Mary Magdalene Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out I'm sure that was not a passive demons just walking away Jesus delivered her from demons from seven demons not just one seven of them and and what is her response to him well think about the, the, um, the demoniac who was, um, had a legion in him and, and he hung out in the, the, the tombs and the, the deserted places and they would put chains on him and they couldn't bind him because he'd break the chains. When Jesus delivered him of the legion, what did he do? He was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. He said, let me go with you. Let me Let me follow you. I want to go with you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, stay here and tell others about me. So Mary perhaps had that same response as, you delivered me from seven demons. I'll go wherever you're going. She is devoted to him. She is following him through his whole ministry. She's very silent. She doesn't come up in in the gospels nearly as much as Peter, but she's with them and she's going with them. So she didn't abandon him. She was with him through the whole thing. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed him to the tomb and saw how his body was laid. So they, they were at the foot of the cross. They're paying attention to the crucifixion. The other disciples took off and ran, not these disciples. These disciples are sitting at the foot of the cross. They didn't make any bold statements about it. I'm going to go, you know, whatever it takes, Jesus, I'm with you. They just followed him. And so when Joseph takes the body from the tomb and, and prepares it, wraps it and, and puts some spices on the body and lays it in the tomb and rolls the stone in front, Mary is right there. She's sitting there watching. And as the sun begins to set, it says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So they sit by the tomb for a few minutes and they watch. And then they return. And what did they do? Do they go, well, Jesus died. Next, we got the wrong guy. We must have messed that up. They don't abandon him. They return and they go, we've got to take care of that body. This is not a proper burial. This was a hasty burial. And so they gather spices and ointments. They probably gathered some linen cloths to wrap him in. And they get it together, and then the sun sets, and it's the Sabbath. So, what do they do on on Silent Saturday? Well, whatever they did, they didn't abandon him because Sunday morning they get up and go to the tomb. They're ready to, they expect to see a dead body in the tomb. They expect to go to Jesus and, and give him one last honor the dignity of a proper burial. They're expecting to find him there. So what was happening on Saturday, whatever it was, Mary didn't lose her faith. She didn't go, oh, you know, who should I follow now? She is so focused on Jesus, so focused on her master. She says, I'm going to take care of him. Even in his death, I will not abandon him. I will not let it go. So somehow, someplace, the the disciples are gathered, and apparently Mary may have been there with them, or at least she knew where they were, because what she does is she goes to the tomb, expecting to find the the stone in front of it. I don't know how she thought she was going to get the stone moved. Maybe she thought she'd find somebody there, or the gardener, or somebody would help her move the stone. But she intended, she and the other women went and intended to care for Jesus' body. And what do they find when they get there? The stone's moved. And she's terrified. Where is his body? Do you see? She didn't expect resurrection. She wasn't looking and going, oh, he's obviously he's raised from the dead. He told us, he said, I'm going to go and die. And three days later, I'll rise. She had no idea. She fully expected a dead body there. And when she didn't find a dead body, it didn't shatter her faith. It terrified her. Where is he? I want his body. I want to take care of my master. I want to preserve him. I want to give him the ointments and the, and the spices and, and wrap him and carefully and lovingly lay his dead body in the tomb so that, that he could die with dignity. And then they're not there. So now what John says is they, she runs back to the disciples. She goes back and she finds Peter and John. So she obviously knew where they were. And in John 20, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. She does not say Jesus has risen and walked out of the tomb. She still expects a dead body. And so what we know is that Peter and John run to the tomb and they look and then they come back. So when they get there, what do they find? Well, they run and both of them are running together. This is again in, in John 20. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw linen clothes laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes laying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the other linens, but folded up in a place by itself. What they saw was the empty tomb. What they didn't see was signs that wild animals had come in and devoured the body. There was no blood. There was no chaos. As a matter of fact, the face cloth was folded up and put off to the side. Wolves don't fold up cloths and put them aside. just wasn't going to happen. They didn't see uh, grave robbers, the signs of grave robbers. Grave robbers would rush in, steal the body, and run out. They wouldn't take time to fold up the face cloth and set it aside and take the rest of the clothes. They would grab the the whole body and snatched it and ran. It wasn't grave robbers. They haven't put together what it is yet. Remember, they're not expecting the resurrection, and so they, they return. They come back, and what John goes on to say is, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So coming out of Holy or Silent Saturday into Sunday, what they're seeing is confusion. I have no idea what's going on. There should be a dead body. There's no dead body. I I don't know what's going on. So they, they go home back to Mary. So she was grieved. She's still troubled about the the death of her savior and the missing body and all of that. So what she does is she then returns to the tomb again. And when she gets there, she looks in and what John says later in chapter 20 is, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Then she said, They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. You look in a tomb, you're talking to angels, and she still cannot process something supernatural has happened. She's still fixated on, I have to care for the body. It doesn't click that I'm talking to angels. This is what grief does to us, it just is overwhelming. And so she says, I I don't know where they laid him. She goes on, and John goes on, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? Speculation's all over the map. it's possible that Jesus in his resurrected state could mask himself when he meets the road, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they talk for hours and they don't recognize him until he breaks the bread. So it could be that it, it is a spiritual thing where he's hiding it from her because they didn't recognize him until the bread's broken. She's not going to recognize him until he says her name, but she, but grief has so fixated her. She looks at him. And the question is not how could a man rise from the dead, but where did you put him? She's still talking to Jesus. She still expects to find a dead body. Can anything shake this woman's faith? She, she's talking to angels. She's, she's talking to a, a risen Savior she doesn't recognize yet. And she is not going to give up on caring for her Savior. She is just unshakable. So John goes on, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher it clicked. Here he is. Dead men don't rise from the dead. And yet here he is, risen from the dead. And so Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So what is the disciples' response? Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What Luke says is, now, it was Mary and Joanna, the mother of of James, and the other woman who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Mary came and said, I talked to Jesus. And the response is, yeah, right. They still are not getting it. See, dead people don't come back but they do. Jesus raised uh, Jairus' daughter, and they saw it. Peter, James, and John were brought in and said, watch this, and he raised him. The disciples were with him at Nain when he raised the widow's son. And Lazarus, they were with him when he raised Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and in the tomb for four days, and he raised him. But they couldn't believe what Mary had to say to them. Dead men don't rise from the dead. This brings us to Thomas. And Thomas is a very curious uh, character in this story. So Thomas somehow missed it. We don't have a clue where he was on Saturday. No idea. He wasn't there. He wasn't there when Jesus came to the disciples and finally showed himself and said, look, it's me. And they praised him and they worshiped him. Thomas wasn't there. So when Thomas does show up, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands and the marks and his uh, um, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas gets this bad rap as doubting Thomas. But what I want to ask is why did Thomas say he would never believe? And now this is my theory. And if you don't agree with me, that's cool. But this is how I'm processing this. It wasn't that Thomas denied the possibility of resurrection. The only two times we see Thomas speak are right before they go raise Lazarus from the dead and now. So Lazarus in John's telling of the story is tightly connected to resurrection. So what happened is Jesus is is out by the Jordan and word comes to him, hey, your friend Lazarus is is sick. And so Jesus stays a couple of more days on purpose. And then he says, okay, let's go. We're going back. We're going to wake uh, Lazarus up. And the disciples are like, are you crazy? They're trying to kill you. If we go back to Jerusalem, Bethany was real close to Jerusalem. If we go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And and Jesus says, no, we'll go. And so Thomas's response is, let us go also that we may die with him. A very nebulous response. I don't know exactly what that means. It could be resignation. Okay, well, I guess we're all going to get killed. It could be hope. We'll go with him and and like Lazarus die and be raised again. That sounds like a good thing. It could say we're going to go with Jesus and get executed, but you know, having hope in that we don't know. That's John's style of writing, as he says things that can be interpreted a couple of different ways. But what it is is it's Thomas saying, "Let us go die with him." That that's Thomas's words. So when Jesus come, when word comes to him, Jesus has risen from the dead. What Thomas may be thinking is. I've seen Jesus raise the dead. I I know he can do it. I know that God is working through him. He is a mighty, mighty prophet. And and I also know that God never raised anybody from the dead apart from one of his prophets. He he did it with Elijah and Elisha. He did it with Jesus. And, And I don't think that anybody else could do that. If Jesus is dead, somebody else came along and raised him from the dead. And I don't believe there can be another prophet as powerful and as mighty as Jesus right now. There's no, been no sign of anybody that is powerful as him. So when he hears Jesus was raised, he's like, can't be. I refuse to believe it because that would mean there was somebody as powerful or more powerful than Jesus. And I, I refuse to believe that. So I think it wasn't a doubt of, I don't believe Jesus. I think it was a doubt of, I think Jesus is that great. I can't imagine somebody being on par with him. What Thomas, as, as high of an estimation as, of, uh, of Jesus as Thomas had, wasn't high enough. He didn't quite get it. So what happens? Well, here's what happens. Jesus comes to him. They finally comes eight days later, is what it says. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So Jesus has now appeared. So does it sound like a bit of a stretch for me to say that Thomas had tremendous faith in Jesus and couldn't allow something to compete with him? Listen to his response to this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. In other words, here's the physical evidence. And Thomas's response is, where's the other prophet? What is his response? My Lord and my God. There's only one explanation. I thought you were a mighty prophet. I thought you were great. You're more than that. You're my Lord. You're my God. Because you raised yourself from the dead. Nobody does that. That's impossible. You have to be more than that. And so that's his response. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas could put his hand in the holes in Jesus' hand. He could put his hand into his side where the spear had gone in, and he could believe. But brothers and sisters, blessed are you because you haven't seen, you haven't had that opportunity, and yet you believe. This is the point of Easter Sunday, is it authenticates everything Jesus had said. If this impossible feat where he could raise himself from the dead is doable, then anything he said could be doable. He did the impossible so that we might connect with that. So blessed are you that believe without seeing him. But here's the tremendous truth. You will see him. For when he returns, we will be like him when we see him. We'll be transformed into the image of who he is. So this is, this is the Sunday message. So go with those disciples for a second. Friday, terrifying. How could Jesus die? That wasn't what we were expecting. Saturday, silence, quiet. Now what? Sunday morning, it took a while for the truth to break in because it was so fantastic. And so for us, we just kind of hear the story of the crucifixion and the burial and we immediately flee to the resurrection. Yeah, but he rose again. And that's a blessing. But if we treat it too lightly, if we rush there too quick, if we don't go with the disciples through silent Saturday, we may miss some of the impact of Easter Sunday. This is tremendously good news that Jesus rose from the dead. It is a miracle. It is a miracle beyond all miracles. Jesus said, I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. Nobody has authority to take their life up again. If you're dead, what do you do? Decay. That's pretty much it. Jesus didn't decay. He said, I'm picking my life back up. And so he brings us that resurrection life. He brings us that newness in who he is. Let's pray and thank him. Lord Jesus, we confess and we acknowledge that you may not be exactly what we think you are at times. We may not see you respond in the ways that we think you should or do the things that we think you should. Lord, not only in the pages of scripture, but also in our personal lives, in the lives of our friends and our families. And yet, Lord, may we remember this this gospel truth that you rose from the dead that all authority has been given to you and that's demonstrated in your authority to take your life back up. That through the power of the resurrection, we see, Lord, that you are not just a prophet. You're much more than a prophet. Not only are you the king of Israel, you are the king of the entire world. Not only are you a priest who offers the blood of of goats and rams, but Lord, you are our ultimate high priest who took your precious blood inside the temple in heaven. And Lord, thank you that you've shown us all this by the resurrection. Would you cause us to be amazed at it this week? We pray in Christ's name, amen.